MMA40 here, and I, I think one of the major differences between myself and most live streamers and pundits is that I don't immediately attribute malevolence when things don't go the way I wish they would go in life. So I don't believe that this Chinese balloon that was floating over Montana, I don't believe it was primarily driven, strategized, motivated, developed, sent off because of Chinese malevolence. I think it was Chinese incompetence. Like if they wanted to get away with something, right, why would they be a-okay with a you know, very bright white balloon? You'd think that they'd want to change the color of it. I mean, it was very easy to, to spot, right? If, if they were trying to get away with something, why would they try a little harder to get away with something? So, yeah, I, I don't think it was uh, primarily malevolence that was driving this, you know, Chinese uh, balloon, right? It was trade winds. It was incompetence. So... I remember one of the, the major differences between myself and Kevin Michael Grace was we, we hosted a show together for almost two years, and Kevin would frequently see malevolence behind you know, various actors in the political space, and I would either see incompetence or different values, different genetics, you know, different imprinting. And so, too, I, I noticed almost all the news coverage with regard to this Chinese balloon is, you know, why would China, you know, launch, you know, under something, you know, so malevolent? You know, this is so threatening. They can, you know, drop nuclear bombs on top of us. Yeah, how, how bad is that? All right. The punctured hopes for a U.S.-Chinese reset. Now, why, why is China threatening us in all these new ways oh my god and I, I just didn't see that the Chinese were trying to get away with it again here's another big difference between say experts and the populace right the experts say there's nothing particular to fear about this Chinese balloon they don't have you know extraordinary capabilities of spying on us or doing us damage compared to what satellites and missiles and you know, other forms of technology have. While the, the popular reaction is, shoot that damn thing down! How, how dare it intrude onto our airspace? The, the dadgum Chinese Communist Party, those commies, all right, I don't want them in my, you know, backyard. But if this was, you know, a Chinese spy satellite at, say, two, three times the, the distance from, from us, all right, that we, so that we wouldn't be able to see it, all right, that's going on all the time. There's nothing that this Chinese balloon can do. There's no data that it can gather. It, there's no threat that it poses that China doesn't already pose. So when, when things like this happen, all right, and I, I don't see any immediate payoff for, for China with this, this balloon, I, I just see embarrassment for China. All right, so I particularly assume with the Chinese, a great deal of incompetence. I mean, have you ever you know, bought a Chinese product? Know, which which Chinese consumer product do you most associate with quality? Then, if it's not incompetence, all right, if it is malevolence, usually it's malevolence in service of certain values. So because I love these people, I hate those who threaten them. And so when other people act hatefully towards me, all right, it's because they love 
other people, other groups that they see I present a, a threat to. So I also don't go in for the word betrayal, right? Another hyperbolic term for other people having different values than what I expect. So you say, oh, your friend betrayed you because he chose something different than what you hoped, what you expected he, he would choose. He had a different priority than what you expected. And so you use the term betrayal. And so I just find it easier to go through life without all these hyperbolic terms of betrayal and malevolence and you know they're they're out to out to get us they'll stop at nothing we're under threat so going around with a feeling of being under threat at a, like a two or a three level in intensity that serves you because it gives you in-group identity it gives you clarity right it gives you a sense of right and wrong so walking around with a sense of grievance and threat and you know, even hostility to our groups at about a level of two out of 10 in intensity, that, that serves you because it gives you identity, it gives you clarity, it gives you a morality, it lets you know who your friends are, it inspires you to connect more with your in-group. All right, that serves you. But walking around with a five, six, seven, eight, nine, or 10 out of 10 in resentment, rage against outgroups, don't think that that really serves you. Now, absolutely horrifying scenes from Turkey, Approximately 4,000 people. 4,000 people have been killed. Just awful events. Like if if this hit Southern California, right, we're talking life would probably, if this hit as close to the surface in Southern California as this earthquake hit in Turkey, right, Southern California, Los Angeles would probably be unlivable for, for months. Right, life as I know it would end, and we'd probably have, you know, equally thousands of deaths. So very, very disturbing news coming out coming out of our Turkey. I think everyone feels like, yeah, you know, we're all we're all Turks now, right? We're, we're all feel bad about what's going on in turkey Again, I, I will pretty much no we all I, feel this i truly despise the turks i absolutely would support a unified european effort to take back that near asia entirely and whatever happens to the turks i don't give a shit i don't care about them they're ugly and just appalling people with no culture i have visited turkey i had been there and i was just i began to just despise those people uh we have this beautiful like hagia sophia and so on it's imprisoned with these this is disgusting mosque just this repulsive religion of islam i just you know it is a appalling place it is an occupied territory we should just take it from them i don't give a flying fuck about the destiny of the Turkish people. We should rip Constantinople, entire Near Asia from them. We should throw every Turk into the ocean. I do not care about them. We should reestablish Byzantium. That is the absolute crown jewel of our civilization. That is just as important as Rome. That is just as important as Germany. That is just as important as France, London. That is our land. The white race should unify. I will only be satisfied 
I will only know that the white race is back, that we are once again a powerful people when we unify and take back all of Eurasia. When I just think about the fact that Turks are you know, occupying that land, that they have surrounded one of the great monuments of our civilization with these stupid minarets and there's all this shit. It just makes me entirely angry. <laughs> a great classic there from Richard Spencer. I mean, that guy is so entertaining. <laughs> now, let's give context. This was recorded about six years ago. He sounds pretty wasted at the time. I, I don't think he'd be seeing anything like that uh, today. That was old Richard, an oldie but, but goodie. Okay, speaking of oldies but goodies, man, I, I miss talking to my old friend Casey. Now as a channel under Godwood Podcast. Man, so the best next best thing I can do is to watch some of his videos and perhaps comment. One of the things that slips into the conversation sometimes is the idea that you know you see on the on the sort of right wing internet frequently, which is uh, I think incorrect, but, but basically and this is basically what we're debating, which is the idea that Protestantism is this kind of slippery slope that leads inevitably to liberalism. Okay, that's just an empirical fact. All right, you, you may not believe that ontologically it should be that, but that's what happens. Uh, Protestant societies secularized quicker than Roman Catholic societies, all right? The, the world's first secular societies are those from Protestant heritage, meaning uh, Northern Europe. Right, the Scandinavian countries overwhelmingly Protestant. They're the first overwhelmingly secular societies that we've ever had. So that is the way the cookie has crumbled. Now, is this set in stone? Is this part of God's plan? Is it just inevitable? No, I don't think it's inevitable. But that is what the last uh, 300 years of history have shown us. Which, if you're a conservative, is bad. You know, And so that makes Protestantism bad. And uh, the way that that happens, my buddy says, is that, you know. Okay, so secular societies are not necessarily, you know, that much more left wing than uh, religious societies, right? Plenty of people on the left in America, you know, retain a Christian religious identity, be they Catholics or Protestants. Effectively, it causes. Uh, I mean, like, we were, the way that this started this time is we were talking about interpretation of texts. So this is incredibly painful, and I so resonate with what Casey's talking about. So he's about 10 years younger than me, so I feel like I've gone through you know, many of the things that he is, is going through. So it was really important to me for, for several years to you know, demonstrate and argue the, the case that you know, Judaism is more true than other religions. So when you and your friend are arguing about the relative truths of your differing religions, that places a tremendous strain on a friendship, all right? For, for friendships, for, for marriages, you want to have at least a ratio of like three to one positive to negative experiences, and arguing about the relative truth of your religion does not tend to make for a positive experience for either of you. It puts tremendous strain on, on a friendship, and a balanced theory teaches us that the more we have in common, all right, the stronger our friendship is going to be. But the more we focus on what divides us, right, the weaker our friendship is going to be. So 
Casey is really suffering here. It often starts this way because when a Protestant tries to, you know, earnestly dialogue with, and what do I mean by that? I mean like in the very Platonic sense, like I'm re we're really trying to, you know, reach truth together, you know? And when a Protestant does that with a Catholic, like it's very hard to reach truth together because you both will experience life differently. So it's not a matter of just, you know, rational argumentation. You come come to the discussion with very different life experiences. Like on the presumption that both sides are doing it in good faith, which I mean maybe is impossible. That's part of what I'm gonna argue here. Yeah. Yeah. If uh your friend has been a Roman Catholic all his life, and you've been a Protestant all your life. It, it's pretty much impossible to have the kind of conversation that Casey wants to have. When that happens, there's this tendency to try, for the Protestant to go, look, like, let's look at the Bible, you know? And I, I don't think Casey realizes that out of all the world's religions, only Protestantism is sola scriptura. And Protestantism isn't even sola scriptura. That is just its creed. But all sorts of essential teachings of Protestantism, such as the Trinity, are not to be found in the Bible. So it is Protestantism that's the outlier, and it is a dishonest outlier in that, you know, so many of the things that uh, are essential to Protestantism are not to be found in the Bible. So Protestantism, the religion in which I was raised, you know, claims to be sola scriptura, but yet essential doctrines are not to be found in Scripture. And, you know, so, I mean, you, certainly there are verses in the New Testament, numerable verses, that make it seem like, you know, there's some, that some, like, there's certain verses in the New Testament that kind of maybe seem to support certain Protestant attitudes about things. Right, so this, you know, proof texting is very Protestant. Right. Uh, other religions don't tend to conduct themselves this way. So you can pick and choose from, from the Bible or from any religious text to, to make your argument. Right. But uh, it doesn't persuade anybody. But whenever you point to those, the Catholic will always inevitably respond with like, well, that's just your interpretation or you're taking it out of context. Or you, you Protestants always cite these random verses, but you never consider you know, the book of James or whatever. and Right, so the Protestant view is each individual can come to the Bible himself without relying on tradition, and he can just open up the pages of the Bible and God can start talking to him. That uh, he has access unmediated to divine truth just from picking up a book, even if it's in translation. And so, like, this is how the conversation always goes. And, and so then, the next level is, then you have a conversation about, well... How can we establish what's the right interpretation? And that's when the Catholic usually says, look, for the Catholic, this is... There's no one right interpretation of ancient texts, all right? There are many different layers of interpretation. There's the historical interpretation. There's the, the, the literary form interpretation. There's the mystical interpretation. There's the interpretation seen through the eyes of a particular religious faith. This is part of the problem. And so the, the, right, the rightful thing, the right thing, the righteous thing for a Catholic to do is if ultimately to defer to the priest. It's not no, that's, that's a caricature. The, the righteous thing for a Catholic or a Jew to do is to defer to those who are more knowledgeable. 
And uh, that's frequently not the priest and not the rabbi, right? Many rabbis have only a shallow understanding of text. Many priests have only a shallow understanding of, of text. Plenty of lay laity have a deeper understanding of religious text than either uh, many ministers, uh, priests, or rabbis. I say the Catholics shouldn't read the Bible, they will say. But the Catholics should, you know, sort of, I mean, there's, a, there's like a space between the Catholic's interpretation and his heart. The lay Catholics. Right. So, I mean, where, where do you find more intellectually convincing that an individual like, re- picking up the Bible in translation can, you know, access divine truth and access the, the true meaning of the text, or those who consult what the wisest minds over thousands of years of their tradition have said about the text? Right? Uh, to me, the, the case for consulting tradition is is a little stronger than the case that the individual can just pick up a text, read it in translation, and access divine truth. Interpretation of what he reads in the Bible and his heart, where the church should intervene or can intervene and say, actually, your interpretation is wrong. Okay. So for, for the Protestant, this is an affront that an individual might be wrong in his interpretation of text, even though he, he can't even read the text in the original, even though he may not have you know, much uh, religious grounding, may not have you know, much religious practice, may not have you know, much uh, religious knowledge. And yeah, you can be wrong, right? You can be ignorant and you can be wrong if you don't know much. And so when I talk about religious texts, I would like to think that I, if I talk about anything on the show, I'd like to think I bring you know, some semblance of reality and humility so that if I'm talking about a text where I can't read it in the original, you know, I'm not getting too high and mighty about it. You know, I, I recognize my, my own shallow level of learning. So I think that's what a traditionalist would, would react to Casey's notion that, you know, someone you know, very ignorant, can just pick up a text in translation and, you know, access divine truth. Now, to me, that is an, like, offensive idea, and not in the sense that I'm going to... Right, it's it's offensive because it is elitist, right? It says that some people know more than other people. Other people have more qualifications to interpret a text than other people that uh, some people who put in the work deserve more respect in this regard than people who don't put in the work, right? It's not, ironically, Casey's position here is fairly woke, right? Very egalitarian and left-wing, that any old idiot can pick up the text, you know, some donkey can open up a text and an angel's going to shine out. I call the ADL or anything, but I think, like, it offends my sense of what is most human of what we yeah it, it offends his in this case you know left-wing woke egalitarian tendencies that any idiot can you know with a 90 iq can pick up a text and if he can stumble along the words he can get access to divine truth right as opposed to the 145 iq scholar who's devoted his life to studying the text knows it in the original knows all the major commentaries on the text those the historical, social, cultural, religious circumstances of the text, right? Who do you really think understands the text better? We are, and what, more importantly, what Christianity is. Because ultimately, like, I'm a Protestant. I- 
what Christianity is. All right, what, what Christianity is depends on time and place. Christianity in the, the south of the United States is very different from Christianity in West Africa or in Japan or in England or in Australia, right? What Christianity is, what Judaism is, depends upon time and place and circumstance. I think that, you know, the, the, the predominant theme, I think the second most predominant theme anyway in the New Testament is this idea of the gift of the Holy Spirit to give discernment to us. So like... Okay, and is that is that really the second most dominant theme in the in the New Testament, that the gift of the Holy Spirit can give discernment even to an 85 IQ person, even to an ignorant 120 IQ person who can't read the text in its original language? Really? So to me, that just feels like cheap grace from an from my now outside perspective, but part of me was raised with this very thinking that uh, Casey is articulating, and it is, you know, highly egalitarian. Like everyone can come to God just like a little child. So, from from a, a traditional background in in Jewish learning or in Catholic learning, the idea that everyone could just come to God, have easy access to divine truth in, in the text, unmediated by having to do any work, is very childlike. So from from my perspective now, from a Roman Catholic perspective, from a Jewish perspective, what what Casey is articulating is you know childish whimsy that just anyone can approach the text if they believe in Jesus, they'll get the the gifts of the Holy Spirit and access to divine truth without having to work for it. Right? To me, that's just cheap grace. That that's my that's my reaction. But at the same time, I recognize this tremendous beauty and power. If you've seen, what's that Robert Duvall movie, The Prophet, where Robert Duvall plays a preacher and there's this very angry man who's intent on doing harm, and, and Robert Duvall is able to pray and, and you know touch this guy's heart and just completely turn, turn his life around in, in about two minutes. And I've seen this happen with, with a lot of people, including people I went to high school with who weren't very nice, but they had a genuine Christian experience, such as what Casey's articulating, and their life fundamentally did change, right? And and the twelve step programs upon which I have so so relied to rebuild my life over the last eleven years, twelve years. All right, they you know come out of this Protestant perspective that you know everyone can access divine truth. Effectively, all of us are priests. This is the difference, right? For yeah, so this is Casey's perspective that anyone can be a priest. You don't need to do any work. You don't need to have any qualifications. You don't need to you know, master anything. You can just rock up to the Bible and you can be a priest, right? Just as much as you know, those who have 145 IQs devoted their entire lives to studying the text. But, but your access to divine truth is equal to those who have worked 1,000 times as hard as you have to those who are many times more intelligent than you have, you get equal access to the truth, even compared to people who are far more religiously disciplined and committed than you. For the Catholic, there's a priest class who can do that. The rest of us, we don't know. We kind of... Well, Catholics would not deny that plenty of laity could, could do that. But guess what? You have to do the work, right? You can't just get it from podcasts, right? People want to learn but they don't want to do the work of reading books, so they listen to podcasts to feel like they're learning, right? So this is 
podcasts are another form frequently of cheap grace. Right? You can't get the same level of learning in a podcast or a live stream than you can when you sit down and tackle a book on your own. And not everyone can you know, claim you know, equal authority or equal intelligence or equal w learning or wisdom with regard to any text, including religious text. Kind of just listen. Obviously, they're always going to nuance this, so I don't straw man it. But ultimately, it comes down to this question of who can interpret the text. Right. So can, can someone who's done very little work, who practiced religion very little, with very little background in religion, very little commitment to the text, you know, no knowledge of the original languages. Do do they do they deserve uh, equal respect? Do, do they deserve you know our, our equal reverence for you know whatever interpretation they come away from the text compared to brilliant people who have devoted a lifetime to studying the text? I would say no, but that's very hierarchical of me. See, my tendencies are right wing. I accept hierarchy. I don't rock up to a learned rabbi or a learned person and just start sharing with them, you know, my opinions, right? When I, when I meet someone who's devoted their life to, say, 17th century English literature, I don't rock up to them and start sharing my opinions on 17th century English literature. I have a sense of respect for their work. And ever since, they've done 10,000 times you know, more work in a particular area than I have. And therefore, their opinion is at least 10,000 times you know, more important, more respectable, you know, more worthy of being listened to th than my own. So I'm hierarchical. I respect people who do the work as opposed to people who don't do the work. I respect people who have a background as opposed to those who don't have a background. I respect those who practice discipline and have exhibited, say, in this case, religious discipline decades as opposed to those who, who don't. I'm a hierarchical, traditional right-wing. Uh, what Casey is articulating is a left-wing, egalitarian, woke approach to text that everybody's interpretation of text is just equally wonderful because everyone can get access without doing any work. And when you get into the questions of interpretation like that, I mean, what that is, I mean, the Catholic will say, if you allow individual interpretations to happen, then inevitably you get atomization and basically each man eventually will form his own sect. And that's pretty much what's happened to uh, Protestantism. We just get the, the constant multiplication of sects and an increasing atomization of society. So Pooch says, I'm not going to go on a hike with an open book. All right, I'm going to listen to a podcast. Exactly. So there are all sorts of areas in life where a podcast is you know, a much better fit than a book. I love to go for walks, you know, I, I travel, right? Or I get tired, I need to do exercises, right? That's when I listen to an audio book or a podcast. But I don't equate that with doing the hard work of sitting down with a text. And the body of Christ is not unified and it's all over and the tradition won't be, you know, preserved and no one will ever remember, you know, the, the crucifixion and resurrection. So, so this is basically what we're discussing. And when, like, I think what I started to realize that is that in this conversation that like, the, even though this guy's my best friend and I'm his best friend and we have been talking for 20 years now. Okay. This is really hard on a friendship, right? 
uh, arguing about the relative merits of your religion, your different religions with your, with your best friend, it's uh, dangerous for your friendship. And it's never going to go anywhere positive. All it is going to be is frustration and pain. Right. My friend, old friend Casey here is coming from a place you can tell of deep frustration and deep pain. Because that's what happens whenever you try to convince anyone of anything against their will. Never going to convince anyone of anything against their will. It will only lead to pain and frustration for both of you. 20 years of friendship where we always are circling back to essentially to Christianity, to, you know. There's no useful direction here. Uh, the only useful direction is to place yourself into a state of trying to appreciate how someone came to the perspectives that they have come to, which are different from yours. So you can exercise your empathy to to do that, but you're never going to change someone's religion against their will. Oh, everything. I mean, we both kind of like went through 2016 together politically, so that we understand at least where what you understand, viewer, about you know right wing politics or whatever. And so, as we're sort of negotiating all this stuff. It occurs to me that, like, basically, Protestantism is being attacked as a kind of either, like, uh, you know, sort of flaccid, you know, again, atomizing acid that just kind of erodes and falls apart and does nothing, or else. Well, there is considerable historical, social, cultural, and religious evidence for just that. It's not the only effect of Protestantism, like Protestants. You know, Anglos have created many of the best societies, the least corrupt societies in, in the world, the United States, England, Australia, New Zealand. But that is a, a steady trend from, from Protestant societies. Now, are, are Protestants just being unfairly maligned? Uh, sometimes, but uh, Protestants certainly do, you know, their fair share of maligning of other religions. I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist. In, in my Adventist upbringing, I heard probably 40 times as much anti-Catholic rhetoric than anti-Jewish rhetoric. So I know this Seventh-day Adventist was going into graduate study of religion at, I think, Vanderbilt, and he, he got taken aside by a faculty member saying, hey, you know, this traditional Seventh-day Adventist hatred of Catholics, that's, that's just not going to be considered appropriate here at, at uh, you know, a graduate-level study of religion. So Adventists are, are famous for their just loathing of, of Catholics. Like, or, and it's because of that, it's to blame for, you know, like everything we think is stupid about uh, civilization since. Okay, anyone who thinks that Protestantism is to blame for everything that we consider stupid about civilization... Right, your that's over attribution, right? Obviously, Protestantism isn't responsible for everything stupid in our modern world. Since you know, eighteen hundred or nineteen sixty-five, or you know, whenever you go back to. So I prefer the perspective that different religions, different peoples, different cultures, different nations have different gifts. Right, the gifts of Protestantism not identical to the gifts of Roman Catholicism or Judaism. Right. Protestants come with their own special gifts, and they also come with their own special weaknesses, just like every other culture in the world. 2016 or whatever. So, okay, so the, I'm a little, I'm like, you know, so the second most important theme in the New Testament, I think, for me, is this idea of discernment. Like, of 
yeah, this is the second most important theme for Casey, right? I, I love that he's so passionate about religion, right? You don't, you don't meet that many people who are so passionate about the absolute truth of their, their religion anymore. Of, you know, Hebrews chapter 5, 11 through 14, you're not supposed to continue drinking milk forever, but now, you know, grow up, eat solid food. So Casey has, you know, hung a lot on his, you know, growing Christian supremacism. And I don't say Christian supremacists as a criticism. Anyone who's an authentic, you know, Orthodox Jew or an authentic, you know, Orthodox uh, Roman Catholic or an authentic Orthodox Orthodox Christian is going to be a supremacist, right? You believe that your religion is the one true religion and, you know, every other religion falls short. But uh, he's he's you know, sacrificed a lot for this. This is that this is his you know, ever sharper, ever more defined, ever more important hero system. And we all tend to react very badly to any threats to our hero system. So if you, you know, have a particularly passionate attachment to your hero system, you're going to find it very painful to interact with people with very different hero systems because that experience and that knowledge, right, will rise up very awkward questions in your own brain about the possibly fictional nature of your hero system. And why that is so disconcerting is that we all need a hero system to avoid feeling insignificant. We all need to belong to something greater than ourselves, something that transcends our own insignificant lives to give us a sense that we matter. Do it for yourself. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You know, we have one priest, it's Melchizedek, it's Jesus, like, that's all you need. The, Jesus was the perfected sacrifice, there won't be another, once for all, you know, etc. So that's the, that's the second most important idea. Of course, the first is the promise, right? The idea of the promise, which gives rise to, you know, which is, you can see it in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, most prominently and most easily, but it's, it's, all through the New Testament, the idea that, you know, God spoke with Abraham and promised him, you know, that he would take care of him essentially and make him a people and so on. And the, and the Christian interpretation of all that really. So we all have to hang our lives on, on something. Like I, I hang my life on my Orthodox Judaism, by my 12-step approach to life, what, you know, I regard as the, the pursuit of truth. And uh, that, that's my hero system. Here is Casey being you know, passionate and vulnerable about his hero system. We sort of finalized, I guess, in Galatians 4, 21 through 30, is that the Christians are that people and that effectively, like, we're Israel. Like, that's the idea, right? So you can, you know, take Paul's word for We're Israel. Like, we're, we're the new Israel. We're the true Israel. We're not like those bloody wankers who are the false Israel. We're now the true Israel. We are the, the true inheritors of, of God's promise to Abraham, God's promise to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and to the Hebrew prophets. We're the real deal. We're the fed dinkum Israelites here. It, it, it seems like uh, someone who practices Orthodox Judaism, it just seems kind of pathetic. Right? When, when you know what like the, the fed dinkum you know, Jewish way of life is, like all these people claiming to be you know, the true Israel who you know, don't engage in any of the practices, you know, don't make any of the sacrifices that those who, who lead a traditional Jewish life, 
it just seems like delusion. But every religion looks delusional, if not satanic, from an outside perspective. If you weren't raised in Orthodox Judaism, it's highly unlikely it will ever speak to you. If you weren't raised in Evangelical Christianity, it's highly unlikely it'll ever speak to you. We're almost never you know, attracted to religions that we weren't raised in. And wherever you put your flag in the religious world, you know, every other religious alternative is going to, in all likelihood, look evil and satanic to you. For it, not mine. Again, you know, read Galatians 4.30 and see what you think it means. And so that's like sort of I'm weaving all this stuff together. We're... Yeah, it just seems from an outside you know, traditional Jewish perspective, hey, if you just read these chapters, you know, see what they mean to you. Because you, you know, you have access to the truth just as much as someone who's devoted 50 years of his life to this text, who can read it in the original, knows all about the historical, cultural, religious, uh, social context for the text. But you know just as well, because you have equal access to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, if you just believe in Jesus like I do. Just seems a tad naive. But, I mean, there are plenty of things that I, I, I believe and I practice that will seem... You know, at best naive, if not downright satanic to you. So I, I say that I'd like to think with, with all humi- humility that, you know, if you knew the things that, you know, I say and practice in my religion and you're not raised as an Orthodox Jew, you'll find it, you know, downright bizarre and if not evil. I'm trying to have this argument and I realized at some point that for every sort of good point I think I make, you know, he comes back with, but what about... So, so guess what? When we think we make good points, uh, there's no necessary correlation between we think we make a good point and we actually do make a good point. The human being is just infinitely capable of fooling himself. We do much better when we figure things out and reason things out socially, not just with, with one friend, but with you know a whole group of people, right? Because other people will spot the, the weaknesses in our arguments that we cannot see. Some other problem. And the problem, like his questions are good questions, you know? So like, I want to go through some of these questions and they're not just his questions. They're, they're like things that I've been uh, working through for years. And there's something in them that I think like is leading me to conclude that good faith conversations like between, let's say, a Protestant and a Catholic, the kind that were encouraged and sort of established by that Vatican II conciliation, uh, you know, ecumenical period, basically after the Holocaust, you know, basically after World War II, that included Jews in some case, but, you know, certainly Catholics and Protestants are going to, like, get along, you know, respect each other's religion. Well, that's shocking. Who would have thought that uh, two people who spend, you know, separate lives in, you know, different religions can cannot have, you know, productive conversations about which religion is the true one? Guess what? Uh, lifelong Dallas Cowboys fans, you know, cannot conduct fruitful, good faith discussions with lifelong San Francisco 49er fans or Pittsburgh Steelers fans about, you know, what's the the one true National Football League team? You know, which team is the most awesome? Or when I was growing up, my, my best friend, his favorite pop group was ABBA, and his second favorite was Air Supply. Now, my favorite group was Air Supply. But no matter how much we talked about the relative merits of Air Supply versus ABBA, 
Like, neither of us budged, right? So guess what? Americans and Australians who each believe that their country is the best in the world are not going to have productive, good-faith conversations with each other. Orthodox Jews and Reformed Jews are not going to have, generally speaking, productive, good-faith conversations with each other over which denomination is superior. ...and so on. Well, it turns out that if you really look closely, it's impossible. They don't really work. And uh, someone in the chat says, uh, Casey's a hate-filled anti-Semite. Well, to, to whatever extent, you know, that, that kind of appellation has any truth, it's only the mirror reflection of he is now, you know, a passionate uh, Christian. So you love something, you know, you hate that which threatens or neutralizes it. In the same way that, Ju we've, you know, that we've, many of us have sort of started to make fun of the idea of Judeo-Christianity, the same thing goes for ecumenism across the Protestant. So there, there's a lot to make fun of with, with the idea of Judeo-Christianity. But guess what? If you fall into a civilizational war with, say, Islam or secularism or... to protect our best interests and Catholic divide when you really start to look into them they are not the same faith they do not understand Christianity in the same way and I think for the last 50 years Protestants have sort of done this thing where they've been like oh we're willing to concede that like you know the Catholic faith was the true faith it just got a little off direction in the 1400s or something and then Martin Luther like sort of adjusted it and so you know we're all basically Christians at this point but that's not the case. I think that's not the case. Oftentimes you'll hear the meme or the like, like condescending meme from Catholics who go like, oh, so you're saying there was never a real church from like the year 300 until March? Well, guess what? Every individual can find, you know, ways to condescend to other people, right? The most noble, natural thing in the world is to condescend about outgroups or even to outgroups if you feel secure and happy and strong in your in-group identity. Right. This this kind of condescension and bickering and, you know, rival truth claims in matters of faith that are subjective and you can never arrive at any kind of objective uh, truth answer. Right. It's just inherent in, you know, in-group versus out-group relations. Nothing necessarily to do with Protestantism versus Catholicism. Luther and no one understood. Like, yeah, I basically am saying that, you know, and. And then, like, not only that, but I'm saying, you know, like what Dostoevsky says in The Idiot, you know, which is, see how fast I can do this, which is like, you know. So anyone can, you know, find texts that rip into an outgroup. Right? <laughs> I can access you know, Jewish texts that rip into non-Jews. I can access Protestant texts that, you know, rip into Catholics. Right. It's doesn't you know it doesn't take a lot of effort to mock outgroups <clears throat> how can catholicism be an unchristian religion what sort is it then asks ivan petrovich on page 574 of the idiot if you have this first of all it is an unchristian religion the prince began again very much agitated and speaking with undue harshness that's the first thing. And the second thing is that Roman Catholicism is even worse than out-and-out -out atheism. That's how I see it. Yes, that's how I see it. Atheism just preaches negation. 
But Catholicism goes further than that. It preaches a distorted Christ, traduced and abused by itself, the opposite of Christ. It preaches the Antichrist. I swear it, I can assure you of that. It is my own long-held conviction, and it has indeed tormented me. Roman Catholicism believes that without universal temporal dominion, the Church cannot survive on earth. Non possumus, they cry. In my opinion, Roman Catholicism is not even a faith. It's a continuation of the Western Roman Empire, and everything in it is sublime. So the one time that Dennis Prager called me, it was like circa 1991, and I was reading, I was reading Dostoevsky at the time. I was reading the Brothers Karamazov. I was reading about the Grand Inquisitor, and uh, Dennis Prager called me. Said, "Oh, look, you called me many times. I thought I'd call you." So I'd called into his radio show probably 40 times by by this point. Had bought you know thousands of dollars worth of his uh, cassette tapes his, of his lectures and his his writings. You know, I'd been blasting them to you know all my friends all over the world. And uh, I, I said, Dennis, you know, you've inspired me. I got to live for God. <laughs> Dennis said, Well, you know, try to be moderate about it. You know, you, you don't have to, you don't have to become a jerk. You don't have to become a fanatic. But I was reading Dostoevsky at the time that uh, Dennis called me. Subordinate to that idea, beginning with their faith, the Pope sees the earth. I don't enjoy Dostoevsky anymore. He just, just feels, you know, very much like a. You know, undergraduate, you know, extreme teenage level of, you know, emotional intensity. An earthly throne and took up the sword. Since that time, they have gone the same way, except, sorry, everything has gone the same way, except that to the sword, they've added lies, intrigue, deceit, fanaticism, superstition, and evil doing. They have trifled with the most sacred, truthful, innocent, and ardent emotions of the people and bartered them all, all of them, for money and paltry temporal power. Is not this the teaching of Antichrist? Atheism was bound to come from them. Atheism did come from them, from Roman Catholicism itself. Atheism first came into being through them. So I wonder if uh, Casey actually immersed himself in a flesh-and-blood Protestant community whether he'd be able to maintain this same you know, level of extreme enthusiasm. And it just feels from an outside perspective, I have, no, I have no knowledge about anything that's been going on in Casey's personal life over the past three years, but just from an outside perspective, you know, watching the video, it feels very much like the type of extreme devotion you really can only maintain if you're absent from the flesh and blood practice of the religion that you're advocating. Could they believe in themselves? It gained strength from their abhorrence in which they were held. It is the spawn of their lies and spiritual impotence, atheism, and it goes on like that. So, like, this is this is an antagonistic view, right? And I know that, like, Dostoevsky wouldn't have been Protestant but Orthodox, and even he found this kind of a conflict happening. Yeah, guess what? People tend to dislike outgroups, particularly outgroups that claim the mantle of truth that you believe really belongs to your in-group. At least imaginable, right? So this is the kind of thing where, like, a lot of times he's my best friend. We talk about our families and so on. And, you know, I, I have every desire to be conciliatory. Yeah, a lot of the time, did he say a lot of the time he's my best friend? But uh, when, when you have these kind of, you know, what's the true religion? Is it mine or yours? Right? That really does tend to wear on a friendship in the argument but you know at a certain point when 
he, who also I'm sure, I mean, he's puts up with me. So obviously he's as conciliatory as possible, you know, all the time. But, you know, at some point he, he goes, look, man, Protestantism, it just messed everything up and it's bad. And then like, what can I do other than either, you know, defer to him and convert to Roman Catholicism or. Or you can simply admit, you know, to the extent that he's saying the truth, you admit that, right? That That's not the only effect of Protestantism. That is a valid critique of one negative effect of, of Protestantism. So when someone says the truth, you should recognize it and, and admit it. doesn't mean you need to convert to another religion, right? But just recognize that your culture, like other cultures, has certain strengths and weaknesses. Which, it, like, if I don't believe it's true, I got to push back, you know? And I think that's, like, where Protestantism is right now, in general. Not just me, but, like, it needs to start doing that. Become aware. And it just feels like, again, this is an analysis that is largely removed from the actual flesh and blood practice of, of Protestantism. This is this is a perspective on Protestantism that you you know you can only get by you know, choosing selective you know texts and, and and preachers in you know a virtual world as opposed to practice in the real world with flesh and blood people. Aware of itself and make the counter argument. You know now how does it do that? Well, like I have. No, important notions about this. Like, I want to read through Mark 7 with you and talk about how Jesus himself declared all things clean. Like, that's... Okay, so you're setting yourself up in a very vulnerable position if you're claiming that you've got important notions on this if you don't have much learning in, in the text, all right? So you're getting out of touch with reality and in the battle between reality and fantasy, reality usually wins. So I, I just don't think on a, on a rational, empirical basis you can claim that you have important notions about these religious texts if your, your level of learning in these texts compared to a real scholar is like a second grader. Something in ortho, I like because you'll get your James Tabor, I'm arguing with another guy on Twitter about this, or whoever these... Okay, so James Tabor is a Bible scholar who, you know, speaks, who, who's literate in many, you know, languages of, of the Bible and surrounding cultures, who's devoted a lifetime to studying this text. But uh, Casey, who's not literate in any of these languages, feels completely qualified to argue with him because Casey has access through the gifts of the Spirit to the, you know, the true, undistilled divine truth found in these texts. Sort of, uh, you know, Titus 1... 10 through 16 Judaizing sect types who want to say like, oh, Jesus was just a Jew. And then Paul hijacked it and made something like that's not that's not what we think here at the Godward podcast, you know, like. Uh, yeah. So, again, it's just feeling a little disconnected from from reality. What what we think at the Godward podcast. We're like we believe Paul was a Protestant in the sense that, you know, in and so, like, in what sense? In the sense that he believed in the gifts of the Spirit, in this discernment. I had a friend who, who was a great writer, and uh, a mutual friend of ours wanted to, you know, publish, you know, lengthy excerpts of her writings on his blog. And he said, "It's like, you know, this is the kind of thing that we love here at you know, the name of his blog. But this is like his individual blog, right? So talking about, you know, what we love here, you know, your individual." podcast or, or individual blog 
little disconnected from reality is fun. It's amusing. I, I do it too. The process and he encourage he like commands us, you know, uh, like with, by the way, with, like impelled by the voice of Jesus, he commands us to, uh, think like this. Okay. And so, so that's what I want to get at. Like, I want to, I want to do the thing where I talk about anti-traditionalism about how Jesus himself was born into a dead and dying tradition. There have been no prophets for like 450 years, you know, the Okay, so just because you, you were out of, you know, one particular phase of prophecy doesn't make it a dead and dying tradition. This dead and dying tradition has proved to be, you know, incredibly influential uh, over the past 2,000 years. And uh, obviously it wasn't dead and dying because it's still an incredibly influential tradition, the Jewish tradition. So 2,000 years you know, later, after it was supposedly dead and dying, it's still alive and vibrant and more Jews are studying Torah today than any time before in history. They're studying Torah seriously, deeply, in the original languages. The temple had already been destroyed. The second temple was kind of fake. It wasn't working. There was this whole Pharisee thing, which he criticizes in Mark 7 and elsewhere. It's just, it's like it wasn't working. And yet, you know, a branch shall come forth from the root of Jesse, and this whole thing gets rejuvenated in Christian faith, which is in some sense a return to the way that Abraham lived, even before the law of Moses, right? Which is like, we just talk to God. And so like, for example, in the 1630s, when Anne Hutchinson gets in big trouble with the Puritan hierarchy, you know, the Puritan, like the, uh, the like basically the orthodoxy of the Puritans, right? She says, I heard a voice. Like I heard a voice. Right. So guess what? Even Protestants have orthodoxies. You can't create any cultural movement. You can't create any in-group identity without it quickly developing orthodoxies. And you can't maintain a coherent community if any individual can come along and say, oh, God spoke to me and you all are wrong. Guess what? People don't like it when you come up to them and say, God spoke to me and you are doing it wrong. Voice that spoke to me. And they, they said the same thing that all of you say, you know, to me, when I, when I talk like this, or when I quote Jonathan Edwards or Ann Hutchinson or John the Baptist or whatever, they go, how do you know that it was really the voice of God and not a fake revelation? And, she and you don't know, right? We're talking about the non-rational, even the irrational, the unverifiable, right? That, that's the realm that we're moving in here. She says, how did Abraham know? And that's all, like, that's, and it's like that's an undefeatable argument because all like what can the inquisitor do there at that point he goes are you saying you're like abraham and she you know why it's an undefeatable argument because it, it, it's true all right if i was to stand here this is the equivalent of what casey's doing right? i'm saying hey if i was the quarterback of the dallas cowboys two weeks ago we would have defeated the san francisco 49ers we would have at least gotten to the nfc championship game all right I, i'm a 56 year old man all right, it's highly unlikely that uh, I could have quarterbacked the San Francisco 49ers to, to victory. But when you, you know, live, live so much in this abstract fantasy world, right, it's, it's, uh, it's hanging out in maladaptive daydreaming, thinking that you have important insights into these texts that you know, real scholars who know all the languages and have devoted their lives to studying this stuff, they just don't have it. But I got, you know, I got the un distilled you know i got the unmediated i got the distilled divine truth 
She goes, like, yes. And we're all supposed to be. Like, it's not, in other words, and see, that's the thing. Like, that's the big psyop that tries to keep, you know, real pre- So you could call it a psyop or you could just call it reality. My bias is to call it reality. Protestantism down, which is that it tries to go well. It's not about keeping Protestantism down. It's about pointing out that like all cultures and all religions and all individuals, you know, Protestants come with certain strengths and weaknesses. I mean, you're not a special person like Moses or Abraham or Elijah or Jeremiah. You're just one of the regular people. You know, no, that's not it. That's not what's promised. Okay, you have the mind of Christ. That's what Ephesians says. You know, you have the whole armor of God, like put it on and wear it with confidence. So wait, if you've got the whole armor of God, you know, put it on, you've got the heart of Christ, then why would any of these things be perturbing or upsetting? Right? If you've really got the armor of God, you know, the heart of Christ, then you know these these you know, friends who don't agree with you about religious truth, you would think that would not bother you. If you really do have the armor of God and the heart of Christ, I, I don't know how you can have claim both things here. One, you know, really upset my Roman Catholic friend, you know, won't accept that Protestantism is divine truth. Two, you know, I have access to the, you know, armor of God, the, the heart of Christ, but yet, you know, it upsets me that, you know, my, my friends don't, you know, share my identical Christian beliefs. That's what I want to argue. But what I find in making that argument, and you're probably feeling this right now. You're feeling this right now. And like, as you're watching me speak, you're like, no, but, you know, but what about this? That sounds crazy. You, you... No, what I'm feeling right now is someone who is trying to find, you know, a sturdy foundation for his life and believes that he has found it in a, you know, renewed, reinvigorated uh, Protestant Christianity. So when your life is firing on all five cylinders, all right, you don't, you don't need, you know, to desperately be right about religious truth. But when your life isn't firing on five cylinders or four cylinders or three cylinders or two cylinders, all right, then your quest for religious truth becomes much more desperate. At least that is my experience. When I was basically bedridden in my 20s, right? my number one quest was for religious truth. I needed you know, some foundation for my life. That's why I so you know, empathize with, with Casey here because I feel like you know, I went through you know, a very similar experience and you know, just drove people crazy because I was just so convinced that uh, Judaism was divine truth compared to you know, all these other false religions. You know, all these like bubbles of thought pop up whenever anyone makes like an argument and you're very impelled to type a comment or something on, you know, the comments section. Here you're only impelled if you don't have a lot else going on in your life. If you have a lot of things going on in your life, if you're absorbed in your work, if you're absorbed in your ongoing education, if you're absorbed in certain volunteer commitments, if you're absorbed in your commitments to your spouse and to your family, to your friends, to your community, to your nation, to your city, to your state, to to your hobbies, to developing new skills, right? You're going to be much less vulnerable to feeling like, oh, there's someone wrong on the internet. I need to go correct them.
Here's a li I'm going to scroll it down your screen here just to give you a sense, but I'll read through it too at the same time. I okay, what prompts us to inquire about God? All right, there's no one objective answer to this. Right? Different individuals have different you know, reasons. Would we ponder or inquire about God if we were not instructed? Perhaps some people would, some people wouldn't. The awareness of death, yes, the awareness of death, but there's a deeper feeling behind the awareness of death, as Ernest Becker puts it in his great book, The Fear of Death. Is that, that the name of the book? Anyway, our greatest fear is not death, it's insignificance. So how did all of this get here? All right, again, the more important question that most people struggle with is the fear of insignificance, the question of right and wrong. Yeah, we all operate as though there's objective right and wrong, and we all get you know outraged when people do wrong according to our own system. What is the nature of God? Unknowable. Is God uncreated, perfect, omniscient? This is just you know purely in the realm of faith. Is God all good? It's a faith question. Are there multiple gods? Another faith question. Does God change or evolve? It depends how you read the religious text. You can read the, the Hebrew Bible, very much see a changing and evolving God. But if you have the orthodox perspective, no, this is just you know different facets of God revealing itself. He doesn't change. Does God elect or choose certain people? Does God participate in human affairs? Does God reveal himself to people and animals? All right, these are just all unknowable, unverifiable faith statements that normal people, by the time they hit their 40s, are no longer perturbed by that, which makes it special. Right? How often do you see a 40-plus-year-old bloke you know, absolutely taken by, by these questions, someone who's like wrestling with them, someone who may be losing sleep with them, someone who's devoting you know, hours of, of study and contemplation to these questions. You don't see this very often. This is, this is special. And this is vulnerable. Like he is being vulnerable with his truth. I just typed this up last night when I was frustrated by my buddy and how difficult it is for either of us. I'm sure he feels the same way. It's me too, you know, because as soon as he makes the argument for you know, uh, he'll, he'll, you know, he goes into Matthew 16 and he says, <clears throat> you know, Peter got the keys of the kingdom and apostolic success. So who really got the keys to the kingdom, guys? Was it Peter? Was it Paul? Was it James and John? Was it Judas Iscariot? Who really got the keys to the kingdom? Session and, you know, <clears throat> uh, the liturgy and, you know, and I go, no, but what about this? And what about that? And, you know, and then when I can. I could just never, I, I can no longer imagine arguing about any of these questions because they're entirely a matter of faith. I think for, for years, I, I have virtually 99.999% of the time completely eschewed you know, any arguments over, over faith. These are all questions of faith for which there's no verifiable objective answer. Just seems absolutely ludicrous from my perspective to argue about these to get upset about them they're just simply questions of faith All right these are questions that exist in a non-rational non-empirical non-verifiable realm you can tell when he gets frustrated because he goes why don't you go read the catechism yourself it's all there you know and it's because i'm asking too many questions as he's trying to construct his argument and this is what, this is the most frustrating part about the dialogue and dialectic. Okay, so this is, I love this because this is, you know, something I say all the time and I get to say it again. All right, whatever's frustrating us, whatever's troubling us, whatever is bothering us, whatever's driving us mad, 
right? It, it's very rarely that's the thing that's the problem. This is just a symptom of a problem, right? It's unusual for a man in his 40s to be this frustrated and pained about other people having different perspectives on questions of faith, right? Casey, my, my read of this is he feels pain for the reasons he's saying, but the real reason he feels pain is that this is a symptom of being off track in your life that you would become you know, so passionate about you know arriving at similar conclusions with, with your best friend on, on matters of faith. So let's say I'm a 56-year-old man, all right, I've never married, I've never had kids, and let's say I start making these really vulnerable videos about how painful it is that I've never married, how painful it is that I've not reproduced that's not the real problem. The real problem is deeper than that. The real problem is something about the way I relate to myself, which has made it more difficult for me to develop, you know, lasting relationships with other people, including other women, right? The not being married, not having kids, that's just a symptom of a much deeper problem that's going on with me, inside of me, that uh, walks with me and talks with me as I, I go through the day, right? It, the, the not being married, the not having kids, the you know not earning you know well into six figures, you know not being as successful as I would like. Right? These are all symptoms of this deeper problem that you know there's still a substantial amount of you know misfiring in the way that I react to stimuli. Now it's be a lot easier to be concrete and say, oh, you know, not being married, that's the pain, or not uh, not having kids, that's the pain, or you know not earning. $300,000 a year, that's the pain, or not having a nationally syndicated, like, you know, these are concrete, I could, you know, you can easily, you know, build around that. But all these things, they're just symptoms, right? The, the real issue is that there's something in me, something in Casey, there's something in you that is not firing right as a reaction to the stimuli that life gives you. And as a result of this miswiring in your central nervous system, Right, you know, life becomes painful and frustrating. You have, I mean, you really, really have to. You, it's like even best friends get exhausted by it. It's like you really have to struggle to allow the other person. Not just even best friends, especially best friends. Right, you wouldn't find it nearly as painful if it wasn't a best friend. Right, if it was a stranger, you wouldn't care to build the thing and not try to tear it down as they're building it. Do you see what I mean? So. Last night, I was frustrated by this. I wrote things like this. Okay, so here are some of the things I have to ponder. I have to have, basically, I have to have answers for all of this. Why do you need to have answers? Why is this so frustrating? Why are you pondering this? Right? The re I, I don't know what's really going on in Casey's life. I'll just use, use these words and use this discussion as a platform for exploring the deeper issues. Right? The reason that that people, right, you know, get obsessed like this, you know, in, in the second half of life, right? It's a distraction from painful reality, right? Many people would rather do anything than confront painful reality. All right, painful reality is I don't have a lot saved for retirement and I'm 56 years of age. Painful reality is you know, I've never been married and I guess the odds are I never will. Uh, painful reality now, as I'm not nearly as successful in live streaming or in life as, you know, I feel like I should be. You know, the, these, these are painful realities. Now, the temptation is, oh, 
you know, I don't want to sit there in these painful realities. You know, let me fixate on you know, the nature of God, right? You know, why do people fixate on, you know, all sorts of you know, non-empirical things when life is just bearing down on them like a freight train, right? Like life is coming at me. Life is coming at you like a freight train every day. And if you are not where you need to be, you're just going to get run over. You're just going to get destroyed. But dodging the freight train, you know, riding the freight train when it serves you, you know, dealing with what life is throwing at you effectively, right, that's not as necessarily as exciting. And it's harder to have a grandiose conception of yourself and what you're doing with your life when you are primarily dealing with reality, right? If I sit here, stand here, talk to you, 16 people, wow, 16 people are watching live on YouTube right now. One person is watching live on Rumble. One person is watching live on Odyssey. Nobody is watching me on Twitter. And there are probably one or two people are watching me on Facebook Live. That's the reality, all right? 20 people listening to me right now, all right? And when this is all said and done, all right, in, in a week's time, you know, maybe 200 people will have listened to what I had to say. It's really hard to get terribly worked up about, you know, what kind of show am I putting on for 200 people who, you know, the odds are not going to, you know, spend any money, not going to, you know, financially support the show or whatever, I mean, why would I get like terribly upset or worked up or worried or bothered you know, by how you know, 200 people you know, pay attention to what I say over the course of 90 minutes? So if I'm anchored in reality, it's going to be impossible for me to get upset about this. So when I was in Australia, people who you know, were vaguely aware that I do these, these videos, they'd often ask me their first question was, oh, did you, did you make any money today? And if I'm honest, I'd have to say, you know, nine days out of 10, you know, no, I made absolutely no money from my show. And the odds are 99% that, you know, I'm not going to make any significant money from this show, you know, ever, as long as, you know, I'm doing it the, the way that I, I'm doing it. So in that realistic circumstance, it's very hard for me to get too grandiose. <laughs> it's very hard for me to imagine that, you know, I'm wrestling with the great issues that are going to you know, shift the, the future of Western civilization, that, you know, I'm blazing some, you know, brave trail, that, you know, I am shining the light for, you know, a whole generation to come after me, right? When I sit in reality, you know, I dodge the freight trains and I ride the freight trains where they, they serve me, Right. And, you know, I recognize 20 people are watching me right now. And it doesn't really matter that much what I say or what I do, that what I do on here only has a very modest significance. All right. That's realistic. Right. I'm not that important. All right. Uh, I could, you know, get up in, in a park and start O rating, and maybe, you know, 20 people would pay attention to me. But uh, it wouldn't be that important. I just have a, a modest significance. It's hard then to get you know, terribly worked up you know, about you know, the high quality of my thought, you know, the, the cutting edge of my cognitive powers, the, you know, the, the luminosity of my insights into religious texts where I can't even read it in the original. Yes. You know, 
And if I don't, what happens is people go, oh, well then, you know, the first of all, I mean, inevitably always, Look, are you open to finding a co-host? Your best episodes have been with guests and co-hosts. Yes, I love uh, co-hosts. I love guests. I have worked very hard at accumulating guests and co-hosts. It's very difficult to do, right? Who maintains a co-host? Richard Spencer doesn't maintain co-hosts. Uh, JF Garapi gave up essentially on having guests and a co-host, what, four years ago? It's very difficult to do. So I try hard. And I'm still open to it. And before every show, you know, I send an invite to about uh, 10 different people who, you know, occasionally they'll, they'll come on the show. But uh, it's not easy being sleazy. And go back and watch my videos on, you know, the law and authority, Billy Budd, you know, the one about Derrida and the law. Like all of these things are, um, I mean for me, like adult lifelong interests, because the question of authority is so obvious and unavoidable out there. And when authority is questionable or lacking, the next important thought is this thing about discernment, which is to say, like, can you read a text? If you had discernment, one would think that one would be primarily engaged in using it, you know, wrestling with reality. Uh, rather than, you know, trying to find ways to articulate faith positions so that, you know, other people will come around to your point of view. And discern what it means. And not just the text. I mean, ultimately, obviously, following like Emerson or something, it's the, the text is the world, is your experience, right? Like how you have to make, you have to uh, not make, but perceive the meaning of your life. And that's, and it's, and the question is, can we all do that? All right. Normal, healthy people get all the meaning that they need from their family. If you don't get all the meaning that you need from your family, you get it from your family and your friends. If you can't get it from your family and your friends, you get it from your family and your friends and your community. And if you need more from your hobbies and interests, your, your work, your pursuits, right? For the overwhelming majority of healthy people, that's all the meaning that they need, right? When Northern Europe became overwhelmingly secular over the past 50 years, they didn't start raping and murdering everyone because people primarily get that meaning from family and from friends, right? Not from religious text, not from the practice of religion, not from theological principles, right? We get our meaning from each other, from our flesh and blood, real world connections. That's the noble, healthy way to find meaning in life. And once you have that, you don't talk like this, right? If you are tuned into your family, you don't talk like this once you hit your 40s. Can only some of us do it? Can the elect do that? If you want to use Calvinist language or, or the chosen or the twice born do that? Or is it, you know, only the Jews who can do that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like only the Roman Catholics who can do that? Or, and this is what I often get from the Roman Catholics, only the Roman Catholic priests who can ultimately do that. And if it's not the priest, it's like the church itself, you know, the magisterium or whatever. There's always... We never see ourselves. I mean, this is, this is painful to, to watch. It's, it's painful. It's heartbreaking.
it's sad. I mean, I have zero knowledge about what's going on behind the scenes, but I can only imagine, you know, an ocean of pain and frustration could could produce these kind of rhetorical explosions. Other layers that Protestants don't know about. So here's some of my questions that I have to be aware of. See if this seems reasonable. Because again, oh, and the other thing I was going to say is people always go, well, who are you? Like, who are you? Are you a prophet? Which, of course, by the way, notice they say to Jesus. That is a great question. Like, who are you? 40, like, who are you to do a live stream? All right. I'm, I'm doing a live stream for 20 live viewers. Like, who, who am I? I am a person of, you know, modest skills. And in certain circumstances, right, such as when I'm, you know, interviewing compelling guests, right, they can be, you know, quite valuable and unique skills. But, you know, just me commenting on Casey's video, right, I'm not going to, I'm not going to set the internet on, on fire. So who am I is a damn good question. Now, I'm a 56-year-old bachelor who spends a lot of time, you know, talking to a camera, you know, sharing his views on life, uh, reading books, you know, listening to podcasts, and, you know, getting inspired for, you know, something else I want to talk to 20 more people about, right? Who am I? That's a great question, right? I'm I'm a bloke with very modest significance, just the same as Casey. So when I recognize, you know, the modest, the very modest significance of what I'm doing, I'm much less vulnerable to this kind of excitation. Jesus, who who are you? Right. That is what they're saying is to Jesus is like, who are you? to overthrow our traditional faith who are well you're not overthrowing anyone's traditional faith and neither am i all right we're just people with with modest talents and you know some passionate interests right you know i'm passionate about what i'm doing or i you know, wouldn't be putting as much effort into talking to 20 people when i'm kind of hungry and looking forward to working out and eating dinner who are you are you a priest? Are you a rabbi? Are you a Cohen? Are you a Levite? Are you qualified? Did you go to... Oh, so you think Kohenim or Leviim or priests, you know, don't struggle with feelings of insignificance? Everyone struggles with feelings of insignificance. You don't have to be a Protestant. A school with, you know, uh, Gamaliel, like, or, you know... Um, do you have a, a PhD? You know, are you a professor? Okay. Hello, caller. <laughs> Welcome. Blessings, bro. How you doing, man? Blessings. Uh, uh, I'll just bear some of the load for you, bro. It's a quick uh, one tonight. So don't don't expect long rabbinical commentary from me tonight. Okay. Just a few thoughts on the nature of God. Yeah. Yeah. And the Protestants versus Catholic and the yeah. problems of Protestantism. Yeah. My yeah. take here ultimately just so important but not tonight you won't get them tonight <laughs> you're not going to tell us what the one true faith is no not tonight bro you're gonna keep you in suspense keep hey. you in suspense suspense is good for bastards like stradlater oh man do you know that, you know that quote no i don't that's from catcher in the rye <laughs> it was good it was a really well written book suspense is good for bastards like stradlater so uh yeah man uh 
interesting show yesterday. The guy, I didn't, uh, I, uh, you know, even though I, I, I found, here's the, the key insight. I'm going to boil it down because it's going to be a quick one tonight. So you two went on for what, an hour, maybe two, hour and a half. And it was a good, good interview. And basically you mostly agreed all the time, but I came up with the feeling like this guy is just depressing. He's really depressing. Even though I agree with what he says, he sees, he seemed to have like this storm cloud over him. You know, did, did you get that feeling? Yeah, well, I, I had another feeling. I was just waiting for him to say one thing that I hadn't heard a thousand times before. Like when he was saying, like, have you heard of Jim Goad? Did you realize yeah. that 13% of the population commits 55% of, of the murder? Like, I just wanted like one thing that I haven't heard a thousand times before. That's all I wanted. One thing. Right. Just give right. me one unique insight. So are you going to send him the link to the uh, to the Epic Meltdown stream of 2018? No, <laughs> I couldn't courtesy? be bothered. No, it doesn't, it doesn't matter doesn't to me. me. Couldn't even peek your career. You know, not, you're not interested. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. I was a little frustrated by that because I, 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 I wanted to engage with the conversation and I couldn't because, uh, yeah, it was filled with platitudes, the standard platitudes. Um, and... And we did two shows. So, like, he interviewed me, I interviewed yeah. him, and I didn't once hear anything that I hadn't, you know, thought of or heard a thousand times before. Yeah, yeah. I remember, like, you know, I used to have this long commute back in uh, 2014, 15, and I, it would be, um, it would be Rush on the way down, you know, Rush Limbaugh. Yeah. God rest his soul on the way down. And uh, at lunch, it would be uh, Michael Savage. And then on the ride home, it would be Mark Levin, right? <laughs> and I got into, you know, I got into this routine and I got to the point, like, I don't know how many months have passed, but I was like, I can't take it anymore. I simply can't take it anymore. And, yeah. you know, I started, fortunately, I figured out how to do podcasts on my phone by that point. But, uh Ah, there's something about the talk radio, form talk radio formula that is soul crushing. Even if you agree with what's being said, they're just just the 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 emotional intensity and the not to mention the advertisements, but the whole package just sucks. Yes, yes, it's so shallow. I mean, once you once you recognize the formula, the formula is. You are being victimized. I am fighting on behalf of you against the institutions that are victimizing you. That's the whole formula for talk radio. Yeah. But then there was this, these moments of explosive rage. Rush never yes. did this. But, but uh, uh, Levin and Savage would just explode. I mean, at a level, you know, 10 and a half on the Richter scale. Just completely off the charts reaction, you know. And you're like, are these people insane or is this theater, you know? Because <laughs> nobody behaves like this in real life. Nobody comes close to it. And then it sort of gives fuel to the left to say, well, you know, these people are crazy. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a performance, right? It's, it's a performance. I mean, they, they don't walk around with that much rage in, in real life, uh, generally speaking. It's a performance that is compelling. Like if the easiest way 
to get people emotionally engaged is to enrage them. And so it's a formula that's good for their careers, but, you know, it's bad for the individuals who, who consume it. I mean, I noticed that. I was a big Dennis Prager fan. And then I realized you know, pretty much every time after I listened to him, I was more angry and more unhappy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, did I, ever tell you, I told you about my, my IRL encounter with Michael Savage, right? Or I might have like, just written about it. But... Yeah, I don't remember so anyway, he he hangs he goes to this there's this little shopping center near where he lives and I happen to be there one day and this is pre Trump's election it's it's like the October before Trump's election and I come out of this bookstore and this little figure this guy I'm not that tall but this guy was tiny he must have been like 5'2" and he had this long gray ponytail you know and he was charging like a little freight train, just bang, 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 just pounding on the sidewalk. And he just sort of went in front of me. And I said, oh, my God, that's Michael Savage, because he had made reference to his ponytail and how he could be on the right and still have a, like a long hippie ponytail. And I, I realized it was Savage. So I chased him. I walked right behind him. <laughs> and he was like just charging around like a little bug. It's hard to explain. These big staccatic bursts, one way, then another, boom, 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 back and forth, you know, and he was just, it was so hard. He gave off this like manic, enraged energy. And then, you know, I followed him into a Starbucks and I was behind him in a Starbucks. And like the line in the Starbucks was proceeding normally like any line in a starbucks goes you know you wait a minute in between like patient you know someone comes up orders a coffee it takes a minute for the whole transaction to transpire but like 10 seconds in before the transaction he's like puffing puffing and like uh just so angry the line is going so slow and he's like sighing and just histrionic about the whole thing and then he finally gets there and he orders a small coffee and then he comes out of there and he just starts darting around this whole it's this outdoor shopping complex that they have in california that you don't really have back east it's hard to explain the scene but he's just running around and then he's ducking into a hallway and he's on cell phone off a cell phone charging in and out and then you know i'm just kind of watching this whole spectacle and then i sit down at a restaurant he walks by me and then i i say hey michael how come nothing sticks to Hillary in the election, <laughs> you know, during in the media? And he's like, I know, I know, nothing sticks. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's, that was my sort of, you know, two-minute brush with greatness, as David Letterman used to call these things. But, yeah, I, but I, I think, go ahead. Well, and then the other thing is, so like Mark Levin, like, I don't know how much you've listened to him or not. Very little, uh, I can't stand it. Yeah, I went from being able to stand him to, to you know, not being able to stand him. But this, this shrieking, just absolute blood-curdling shrieking that he would do over the airwaves. Uh, but then the funniest thing is the two of them, Savage, so, 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 so Levin followed Savage uh, in, in this particular radio market, you know, and so, so Levin would comment on what Savage had just said, you know, and they hated each other's guts. The, you know, the way I guess any media figure does. I mean, Savage hated literally everybody. He hated Rush. He hated Levin. He hated John Hannity. He hated the whole scene. And he was not, uh, he was completely unabashed about expressing this to the entire nation, you know. But he, he and Levin used to just trade barbs uh, at each other. <laughs> 
which is hysterical. And they would threaten to sue each other. Just ridiculous. But but anyway, Levin had this particular, I mean, at least Savage, I think, was interesting at points. He would be interesting. Mark Levin was just, just the sort of basic, you know, Fox News talking points told with very little, uh, you know, anything above 100 IQ. I mean... I think Savage went for like maybe the one one ten IQ crowd, whereas yeah, whereas, at times, whereas yeah. Levin was seemed to be stuck at a hundred, if not lower. Yeah, and then Hannity is like ninety and below. You know, Hannity yeah. is completely unstomachable, just the worst. But anyway, <laughs> that's what we got for the media, bro. That's all them, and then you know, in this little corner, this little corner, we got forty out here doing the doing the hard work, doing the heavy lifting for the hundred twenty <laughs> for the hundred and twenty IQ crowd. You know? Blessings, Elliot Blatt. Blessings, blessings, bro. Back at you, bro. So that was so. Anyway, that's the talk radio. So, uh, but yeah, <laughs> have you heard of Jim Code? I almost doubled over. You know? <laughs> I was amazed how you just played just played poker with him. Like you just kept poker face. Not realizing your entire career was based. <laughs> but you gotta send him that stream and see if he's got he has any comment. You know. I'm sure you have a copy of it somewhere, right? It, no, it's it's live on, on the internet. I can't be bothered. Yeah. Okay. That was a funny moment. That was a funny moment. I, uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But one the one thing you, I think that is important about what you're touching on with uh, with Michael Savage and Mark Levin is how much energy it takes to do compelling talk radio. I mean, yeah. and when you get some success, right, that fills you up with with more energy. And yeah. and so as long as you can keep that virtuous cycle going where you build an audience and they fill you up with energy and so you then, you know, come with lots of energy for them. You know, they feed off you. They get energized. You get energized, right? As long as you can keep that virtuous cycle going, you're going to be a winner. But you're never going to succeed at, you know, anything difficult if you don't have just huge amounts of energy. And and so just that that energy equation and, and component to to their success is, is intriguing. Yeah. Well, do you think you could bring that level of energy? Let's say it was the only thing, your only job was to stream. Yeah. Do you think you can marshal the requisite amount of energy? I, I think I could. Yeah. But it, it would be it would be tremendously challenging. And like let's say I, I wanted to do this for a living, you know, I'd have to I'd have to pick, you know, a very narrow niche. You know, uh it'd mm. be, you know, a right wing niche so that people mm. know what they're gonna get every time they come to the show. And so I'd have to pick a narrow niche and then I would have to feed, you know, the, this audience what, you know, what, what it was to hear, you know, on a day in, day out basis. And it'd be like, I'm fighting for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you, do you think you could talk about your favorite topics or would you have to be so coded? Would you have to water down your, um, you know, your IQ message to such a degree that it wouldn't appeal, that it would sort of lose its, uh, you know, it's sexy edge. It, it would it definitely be a challenge. You know, right now yeah. I, I'm happy to stream to, you know, 15 people, you know, saying saying what I like. But if I depended on this to to make a living, you know, I'd need you know an audience minimum of you know 300, 400 a night, and so I'd have to speak in a way that would be compelling and 
limit myself to you know a particular to a particular niche so that people would come back night after night you know knowing what they're going to get mm. and and so yeah many of the topics that i like to talk about on these streams i, I could not do it, it would no longer be economically viable so like terrestrial radio so I, when i was talking about this i was thinking about terrestrial radio not not live streaming not podcast um is terrestrial radio completely a non-starter for someone like you? No, I don't think it's a non-starter, but obviously it's hard to break into. It would be it would be a tremendous challenge, and it's success in in talk radio, like viable commercial success, is you know much more difficult than what the you know regular talk radio listener just thinks it is. I mean, you have to have the audience fired up. You have to be mm. vibrating. They have to be vibrating, and it's it's a challenge, you know, bringing that that every day. Would you be able to do like a like an ad read for like you know AAA Home Mortgage? <laughs> would you be able to do? It? Call my friends at AAA Home Mortgage one eight hundred AAA. You know, would you be able to do that? I think I could, but yeah. I I have been known to overestimate my talents. Yeah. Do you think you, I mean, the, the ability, like, do you think <laughs> you'd have to sort of swallow that instinct for sarcasm that you have, right? You'd have to, like, swallow that for a full minute and then bring it back to life as soon as the ad ring was over. Or I'd have to be so successful that I could get away with it. So the most successful hosts, they're able to kind of be sarcastic with their advertisers and get away with yeah. it. But only the people, you know, the, the Howard Stearns in his prime and... Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of this this bloke in in Sydney, Australia, uh, Kyle 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 uh, Sandilands. He he he's able to do that, but very few people can be snarky about their advertisers. No, that's for sure. Uh, um, now, were you? We did. I don't think we've talked about this, but remember the whole sort of um, uh, Stephen Crowder Daily yes. Wire uh, yes. drama from last week. Were you staggered by the numbers that were being bandied about? Yes. Well, it was yeah. a 20, $20 million contract for four years, something like that. Yeah. I was completely dumbfounded. I could not believe there's that much money uh, involved. I mean, I was off by probably two orders of magnitude. You know, I thought, I thought the, you know, one, $200,000, what, what Oh, we'd be 50. talking about yeah i mean someone in the chat saying 50 million so yeah it was just astronomical levels of money and to think that he complained about it yeah and to think about how badly he misplayed his hand and how much yes. money he cost himself yes. do you think i mean you know i i was into crowder for about three months uh way back in like 2016 you know but he sort of lost his appeal to me because uh and the word on the street is that crowder's like uh not to be trusted and a very unstable character and probably dishonest um so uh you know i didn't really much care but then when this surfaced and i heard about the amounts i was like wow and then tim pool too like i mean i cannot stomach that show i cannot stomach him and that show again we're talking millions of dollars per year um so there, you know, it is. I didn't realize what a huge market this whole space is, and all you need is a little piece, Luke. So, what's it going to take? Yeah, I mean, you know, when am I going to get my act together? I'm, I'm 56 <laughs> years of age, bro. 
And I still don't have my act together. I'm still doing selfish little streams. Well, you know, I remember like I was being, I was up in Lake Tahoe driving around um, and it was like a super clear night. And when, so I flipped on the AM radio and like the AM radio in Lake Tahoe, you can pick up stations from Montana, you know, you can Idaho, you can really go a long distance and you can hear stuff from far away. And there's this one station talking about Bigfoot, you know, like Bigfoot sightings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> in fact, it happened. Why can't I be up in Lake Tahoe, flip on the radio and hear Luke talking about the JQ? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? If I could do radio yeah. shows and bring Nazis and Jews on to talk to each other every night. Yeah. Like every yeah. night, Nazis and Jews. Yeah. That's like you could be the blood uh, sports. Internet blood I mean blood sports on talk radio. That'd be awesome. 2018 on the AM dial, man. It, yeah. Let's make it happen, bro. Let's let's pull those tribal connections together, bro, and make it happen. Man. We got the media. Let's do it, man. Let's bring in Andrew Anglin. As the door, <laughs> Ricardo, Kyle. Let's bring in Kyle, <laughs> Jim Good, E. Michael Jones. Yeah. No, AM AM radio is like a, it's like a uh, you know space alien station at the in the in the wee hours of the morning. You just you're amazed at what you can hear uh, on AM. Uh, anyway. Well, you used to be able to get away with a lot more. Like Bob Grant, you know, got away with a lot more, but. The enemies of this kind of discussion have become much more effective. Uh, they've, they've, you know, developed a lot more resources. They become, you know, a lot better at just shutting down this kind of conversation. Yeah, but Bigfoot would fly though. Bigfoot, because yeah, Bigfoot doesn't, doesn't really hurt anybody. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt anyone. It doesn't challenge any sacred cow. Yeah, you know, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't ruffle any You can't feathers. fundraise off shutting down Bigfoot conversations, but you can. Yeah fundraise tens of millions of dollars you know shutting down nazis on the radio mm, yeah well all right so yeah, i think that's all i got man um, okay blessings to you all right all right blessings all right good night all right shalom. good night good night shalom good night. Sir, right. of religion have you published in philosophical theology quarterly you know have you uh like you know what I mean? No, the question is just, uh, Casey, like, who, who do you think you are? Do you have a realistic perception of yourself and, and your abilities, right? I'm live streaming right now to 21 people. I've been doing almost daily live streams since January of 2018. You know, obviously, when, when it comes to live streaming and pontificating and sharing my cutting-edge insights into scripture, into politics, into male-female relationships— all right, on an empirical basis, obviously, I just have a modest talent, All right? So are you in reality? That's what people are asking you, asking me. Like, there's always another layer of, like, are you qualified to do this? And by the way, I just want to add, they'll always throw in there, why are you wearing that stupid furry hat in that video? It's a reasonable question to ask. Are you qualified to interpret religious text? if you cannot read the religious text in its original language? And the short answer is no, you're not. And uh, that, that, that goes for me as well. You know, or like, are you seriously wearing a bathrobe? Or like, you know, why do you look like that? Or Yeah, the type of hats that one wear 
wears, you know, if you're wearing a bathrobe, that reflects on you. We make judgments based on how people comport themselves, how people dress themselves. It it says a great deal about how you regard yourself and then how seriously people should take you. If you sit in a bathrobe and pontificate, people are much less likely to take you seriously than if you dress professionally or elegantly. Did you put those glasses on to make a joke or why isn't your hair combed or you look the wrong way? You know what I mean? Your sound is bad. Like on the internet, there's always... Yeah, if you don't have the self-respect to put together a professional show with good quality sound, then you don't have self-respect. You're not competent. Then, therefore, why would people, you know, treat you with more respect than you have for yourself? If you don't treat yourself with respect, you don't treat your own show with respect. If you don't treat your audience with respect, you don't treat the ideas that you're talking about. If you don't treat how you dress and comport yourself and carry on with respect why on earth would you expect anyone else to have respect for you that you don't have for yourself seems very reasonable to me always that extra layer of kind of like it's like authority checking do you see what i'm saying so just to add to all this and oh it's always like you know ultimately it's like steven pinker himself is waiting there at the gate you know going like who are you you know like uh you know like what's your uh like who are you is a great question it's there's no you know more important question than than people should ask themselves, but perhaps you know no better way of returning from the world of delusion and fantasy into reality. Right, I am fifty six year old you know long time blogger, long time vlogger, on an empirical basis you know unsuccessful. Credit like you're uh, it's you know you're what do they say the horses the uh, you're like your genealogy almost like your, you know, je ne sais quoi, you know, what I, <laughs> you know what I mean? So who are you? And, he, and even if they pretend to be one of the people, the cool people who don't like credential check, you know what I mean? They, they still will have a sequence of a gazillion questions that you're going to have to be able to ask answer. So Casey's main argument here, his main debating partner is reality. And when you're in an argument with reality, reality always wins. Uh, Casey doesn't like it that people are concerned about qualifications, credentials, expertise, uh, level of wisdom, knowledge, self-presentation. Do you demonstrate sanity, self-respect, you know, pro-social, or are you demonstrating antisocial behavior? Uh, this is the nature of reality. You know, and ultimately, like all of this, I'm saying is akin to the question they put to Jesus, which is like, do a miracle then. If, oh, if you're so special, do a miracle. Well, that, that is, you know, one powerful definition of charisma. I believe this came from Max Weber, that the charismatic person is someone who pulls off the impossible, pulls off the seemingly impossible. So let's say you know, perhaps, you know, one or two people might think, you know, Forty's got some charisma because, you know, perhaps I pulled off some, you know, difficult things in my online career. You know, broke broke some big stories. So when when a person pulls off what you know seems to be impossible, they develop a following and they accumulate more resources and more connections to pull off another difficult task. And so that is the virtuous cycle of charisma. You pull off the difficult task. You gain a bigger following, which enables you to pull off more difficult tasks. But then eventually you stop being able to pull things off and then you lose 
the, the label of charisma. You're no longer charismatic if you're consistently failing. So you pull off a miracle, you pull off a very difficult task, you pull off the impossible, you know, people will look at you as possibly someone who has charisma. And then you get more attention, more resources, more money, more insights, more connections, you know, more things going your way. You can pull off more miracles until it stops working. Then you lose the mantle of charisma. You know, to which Jesus replies, you, you know, you'll recall, basically like, fuck off. Uh, you're a- I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember Jesus replying, fuck off. Uh, maybe... Maybe this is a, a new, more modern translation of the Gospels. Perverse generation, to even ask that, you know, which is something worth thinking about. But anyway, my list of questions. What even prompts us to think about God? Uh, like, would we if we were not instructed in it? Is it a natural? What prompts us to, to think about God? So as someone who's narcissistically inclined, recovering narcissist, let me tell you, people who want to feel significant, want to attach themselves to people who are successful and powerful. And it's hard to get more successful and more powerful than God. Some people want to connect themselves to Dennis Prager. Other people want to connect themselves to a powerful rabbi. Other people want to connect themselves to athletes or, you know, powerful entrepreneurs or political figures, right? It's one way of shoring up your own sense of importance. It's one way of pushing away feelings of insignificance is to connect yourself to someone powerful and there's no you know more powerful person than god so your average bloke you know, connects to god and that helps to stave off feeling insignificant because now you know he's tied into the you know, the great mystery the great power of the universe natural normal question or is it like a big psyop you know uh, maybe it's the awareness of death that first prompts a question like that or maybe the question of you know uh Nothing is created out of nothing. How did all this get here? The question of morality seems pressing and related to the question of, you know, is there something to declare things right and wrong? And so on. How about what is the nature of God? Is God uncreated? Is God perfect? Is God omniscient? Is God all good? Are there multiple gods? Does God change or evolve? Does God elect or choose certain people or peoples? Does God participate in human affairs? Does God reveal himself to... Okay, so there are no verifiable empirical answers to any of these questions. It's quite rare that anyone's still passionately asking them in their 40s. The person who does this, I, I don't know about Casey individually, but just using using him as a, a stereotype, usually they're, they're disconnected from reality. Because a normal, healthy, happy person gets all the meaning that he needs in life from his family, from his extended family. And if that doesn't cut it from his friends, from his work, from his community, from his hobbies. I'm going to run. Take care. Bye-bye.